Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this online portion of our Sunday morning worship time. I hope you've had a chance to move through some or all of the at-home worship guide. Those are put together by our student ministry pastor, Rick Penner, does an awesome job on those. We are in about the middle of a series through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And this is the morning that a lot of people have been waiting for because there are a lot of really whacked out chapters in Revelation, but Revelation 13 might take the cake. And it's one of the most infamous because it has two beasts and a mark of the beast and a number of the beasts, 666. And there's all kinds of um, different uh, mythologies that, that have been crafted within the broader culture, within the sub-Christian culture around one or all of these symbols and numbers. So this is a really, really fascinating, weird, powerful text. Bit of a summary. The book of Revelation is a symbolic vision, bringing hope and challenge to Jesus's people. That is the church. And its purpose is to reveal God's purposes for history. And I believe it reveals how Christians in every age and, and in every place are called to faithfulness to God instead of compromise with anti-God or anti-Christ ideologies and systems of power or social influence. Now, the first part of Revelation right here, the uh, uh, first three chapters are kind of messages or sometimes letters to churches. That's easy to understand the end part's kind of easy to understand. Final judgment, Jesus returns triumphantly, establishes his kingdom fully on earth as it is in heaven. But the parts in between are where there's been all kinds of confusion and questions with regard to how are we to understand that? What are we supposed to do with it once we think we understand it? How do we apply it to our lives? And there's been four major schools of interpretation within the church over the last 2,000 years. There's the preterist view who says chapters 4 through 20 have all been fulfilled in the past. The historicist view says, no, it's being fulfilled as history unfolds. So much of it has maybe already happened, but some of it is still yet to come. The futurist view, which is probably the most popular within Christian circles or, or prominent, I don't know about popular, but prominent in terms of seven-year tribulation, rapture of the church, antichrist, mark of the beast, all these things happening in a very condensed timeline in the future, that what we're seeing in chapters 4 through 20 are things that have not taken place but will right before Jesus returns triumphantly in his second coming. And uh, the last view is the spiritual or sometimes called the idealist view that says, actually, the entire book is revealing through symbols and metaphors and uh, numbers, patterns that happen, not necessarily in every age, but pretty consistently across different ages, different generations and different times and places, whenever God's kingdom smashes up in opposition against the kingdoms of this world and against the purposes of the enemy of God who is revealed in revelation to be Satan. 
So those are four broad ways of understanding the book. Many Christians have only been exposed to one, usually the futurist perspective, but we're going over all of them so that we can have a bigger understanding of the book. And I think um, just growing our our understanding beyond a futurist reading of the book of Revelation can be really, really helpful and just allow us to encounter Jesus in and through the book of Revelation in an entirely new and fresh and powerful way. So this is where we are. We did chapter 12 last week. That was the dragon and the woman, uh, the vision of the dragon and the woman. Now we're into chapter 13. And I think from this point on, we can uh, pretty reliably hit one chapter a week. So we've only got eight or nine weeks left to go in the series, but we will be trying to cover one chapter per week. So Without further ado, let's read through Revelation 13. You can follow along with the Bible. I definitely encourage you to have a notepad with you. You can pause the video because it's pre-recorded and take some notes if you want or highlight things in your own Bible. But the more you can engage with the message, the more, um, the more helpful it's going to be for you, right? So here we go. Revelation 13. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And it had 10 horns and seven heads. On its horns were 10 crowns and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live in the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword... For the sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause Whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark 
on his right hand or his forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. This is a toughie. Not even good old MacGyver gets it. I don't understand how to read this text. I don't understand how to uh, absorb any useful information beyond this is either really scary and overwhelming or just weird and nonsensical. But don't worry. There's good news here. Because when we begin to break it down, look for the patterns that the text gives us. Go back into the Old Testament. Look for some patterns there. We're going to find out that all of those four schools of interpretation, again, good news, have a pretty high degree of overlap when it comes to interpreting what is being symbolized here. So three major things we're going to to look at today. There's lots to focus on in this text, but the three most dominant pillars of chapter 13 are the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and the mark and the number of the beast. So let's move into those. And again, if you want a bit more of a deep dive into all the jots and tittles that are in this text, go pick up uh, Revelation 4 Views by Steve Gregg, and that'll give you a really good on-ramp to be able to look at any particular detail and do a deep dive into that. Like I said, the preterists, the historicists, the futurists, and the idealists all say When it comes to the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth and the mark and the number of the beast, they're in broad agreement over the major symbolism. Where they're going to disagree is mostly as it relates to the timeline of these things. But what is actually being shown and emphasized in this vision, they all essentially agree in principle. And that principle is this, that when the text talks about the beast from the sea, It's talking about political persecution from a powerful political entity. Might be an empire, generally, or a particular person. Um, And the reason for that is in Daniel 7, uh, which you should read the whole chapter. We're not going to do that this morning. It's a long chapter. Not just helpful to understand Revelation, but helpful to understand a lot of what Jesus says and does throughout the gospel, especially as he begins moving towards his death and resurrection. In Daniel 7, we have four beasts that uh, overlap and comport really well with these beasts, uh, with um, the, the description of this first beast coming out of the sea. And in Daniel 7, we're told what these beasts are. Four beasts in succession that come out of the sea are four Gentile or pagan kings of the earth that were going to threaten Israel. So it's really clear, just knowing that symbolism in the Old Testament, that what we're dealing with here is some kind of pagan, anti-Christ, political entity of some kind. The beast of the earth, all the views are in agreement that this is somehow speaking to deceptive or false religion or some kind of a deceiving prophet of some kind. Why? Well, because this is someone who looks like a lamb. The beast, although it's described a certain way, says it looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. 
And we've already been told, we've already been shown who the lamb is and who the dragon is in Revelation. The lamb is Jesus, right? Revelation 5, who is worthy to open the scroll of destiny? The lion of Judah. And then John says, then I turned and I saw a lamb. He is worthy to open the scroll. And who is the dragon? Well, that was just the previous chapter where we're this vision of this dragon trying to destroy the offspring of this woman. And towards the end of the chapter, it says this dragon called Satan. So this is this beast, the second beast from the earth is someone who has the appearance of Jesus in the sense that his qualities, there's a kind of a false parody here. He's not a real lamb, but he's like a lamb with two horns, but he speaks like a dragon. The content of what he says is deception. And so all the views say this is absolutely, although we disagree with the particularities, the focus here is the second beast is a deceiving religion and prophet that pushes people, encourages people to worship that first beast, which is this antichrist political political entity. And then the mark of the beast, again, broad agreement that it's some kind of symbol or mechanism for allegiance, like ultimate allegiance. Not like, oh, I just went down to the uh, gym and I signed a contract and now I've got a card that allows me into the gym because I'm... Uh, I've pledged my allegiance to the gym. No, you've just bought a membership. This is talking about a whole person allegiance. A mark on your forehead, on your right hand, your forehead, your mind, your thought life, your will, your hand is what you do. So your thoughts and your actions are completely marked by an allegiance to this beast. So that's where the views are in agreement. Where they're going to disagree is in the details of what this is referring to. So let's walk through those different views quickly. The preterist view says the beast from the sea is political Rome who persecuted Christians and was very anti-Christian. The beast from the earth, which was the religious arm of that, the false religion was the imperial cult, which not only drew worship away from Jesus, but said, you need to worship Caesar as Lord. And the mark of the beast is um, this a deep and unhesitating uh, swearing of allegiance that Caesar is Lord. The mark of the beast is, according to this view, likely a reference to Caesar Nero, because the Hebrew form of Caesar Nero, which you can see spelt there, but is um, pronounced Kairos Neron. When you add the value of the Hebrew letters together, you get 666. So the preterists say, this is speaking to the beast, the the two-winged beast of Rome, who is doing Satan's bidding in the first century that culminates in the Jewish wars and the destruction of Jerusalem. The historicist says, yeah, we're dealing with political and religious deception and corruption, but they localize it all in the Roman Catholic Church. That the beast from the sea that rises up is the Roman Catholic Church, the political arm of that organization. And the beast from the earth that rises up is the religious or doctrinal element that keeps people away from a true and saving faith. And these two work together in order to form this mega institution that looks Christ-like, right? Looks like a, a lamb, but it's actually deceptive in the content of its teaching. So again, you see this very anti-Roman Catholic 
streak and thread move through, particularly the historicist perspective. They're often grounding all of the negative symbols and warnings in the book of Revelation with the papacy, with Rome. The Mark of the Beast, uh, according to this view, is the Pope's official Latin title, which is the Vicarius Fili Dei, which, again, when you numerate those, you get 666. The Futurist view, this is the one that probably most Christians are at least tangentially familiar with. The beast of the sea. Okay, so um, big picture. In the future, Christ is going to rapture his church. And there, again, there's some disparity around, around timeline, but just for the sake of, of the argument, just hold in this uh, basic uh, throughway of events. There's going to be a rapture of the church, which is going to instigate a seven-year tribulation period. It's going to be a time of tribulation unlike the world has ever seen. And during this first three and a half years, there's all this tribulation that is going to allow a single entity, an antichrist figure, a beast from the sea, who's a pagan, to rise up and assert himself and to leverage his political power, his charisma, his force of personality and authority to offer to save the world from this tribulation that is occurring. And then there's going to be some kind of a religious leader or counterfeit Messiah that will uh, accompany this figure and will make it plausible for people to say, we shouldn't just be committed to this person politically. We should be committed to this person at the level of religious zeal and ultimate allegiance. And there's going to be some kind of mark given to those who pledge allegiance to that system whatever that's going to look like. And not all futurists believe that the mark of the beast is going to be something specific, but many futurists do. It's going to be a body chip or an implant or a stamp because that's what mark is translated as into the English from, uh, from the Greek. It's the stamp of the beast. And the text makes fairly clear that without this stamp, without this um, indicator of ultimate allegiance to this political figure. You are not going to be able to buy the necessities of life. You're not going to be able to just ignore it and carry on with life. You will be prevented from participating in even just the regular functions of society, like uh, buying and uh, buying and selling. Most futurists aren't really sure on what the 666 refers to. There's been all kinds of attempts, depending on who you think the up and coming antichrist is in any given age, can you fiddle around with, uh, with numbers and, and uh, alphabet values to come up with 666? But most futurist scholars say that's a weakness of this view, is that it, it, there's not a clear indication of what that is. And then the idealist perspective, the last one says, again, kind of agrees in principle with, with the um, broad categories of each of these things, but instead of trying to localize them to one specific person or one specific event, instead it says we're seeing patterns that could emerge multiple times between the establishment of the church at Pentecost and when Jesus returns. So the beast from the sea is symbolic of any government system that directly opposes the kingdom of God, literally antichrist governments, right? And you think of probably communist governments, uh, right away, because communist governments tend to 
by necessity and by philosophy be not just um, indifferent towards people who are religious or who give ultimate allegiance to something other than the state, but are actually anti those. I want to stamp out religious expression. The beast from the earth is any false religion in the service of secular power, whether you're talking about radical nationalism on the right or statism on the left, right? Whether you are like, our country is the greatest and we kind of worship our political figures like a god or government is the greatest thing. What we need is more, like we want to give more and more power and authority to the state because the state and the government and the governing powers, they can save us. They can lead us into a utopia, uh, idealists would say the beast from the earth represents any of either of those extremes, regardless of how they get particularly manifested, whether in the 19th century, 21st century, 7th century. And the mark of the beast is a symbolic depiction of submitting to the beast, of becoming enslaved to that way of thinking, right? The 666 symbolizes um, if you think of the Trinity, right? So you have three persons in one God. And what is the, the, the number of perfection in the Jewish scriptures or, or wholeness or shalom at seven? You know, three sevens would be this depiction of this triune, tri-holy God, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, um, here's the throne room of God declare. Um, so 777, in a sense, you could argue, could be like God's number, So what does 666 symbolize then? Well, it symbolizes a a kind of counterfeit trinity. It symbolizes humanity's desire to see itself as God and saying, you know, know, it's not God who's the highest good. It's not God who is owed our ultimate allegiance. That's that's us, or at least that's certain political um, or certain figures which should be venerated and worshipped because they are the means of salvation and deliverance. They're the ones that we should look towards. So there's this um, symbolic, to call it an inversion isn't right, but it's a, it's a parody. Just like the, the, the second beast, the lamb, the beast looks like a lamb, but it actually has the, con, you know, it speaks like a dragon. So 666, it kind of looks like this, um, you know, you don't numerically, you're kind of like, oh, it's kind of like God, like three and, and, and perfect, but it's, it's one number off. It doesn't go high enough. And so it sets man at the center. So any of these systems that enthrone or enshrine the human as the ultimate, as the, as the authority, as that which deserves our total devotion and allegiance when we surrender to that way of living and that way of thinking, we have, in a sense, received the mark of the beast. So it's an intentional living into that narrative. Okay, so those are the four different views. Where do we go with a text like this? Well, for some, just understanding the different views is going to be kind of mind-blowing enough and to be like, wow, there's one of these views that I have never been exposed to, but that's super interesting. And again, if you want to do more follow-up, I can give you more resources. Let me know. But there are at least two, well, three imminently practical um, and incredibly urgent themes that press should press into us from this text. The first is, should we cooperate with our government? 
right? If does this text infer that all governments everywhere and always are somehow connected to the dragon that is Satan? Not that there's Satan worshiping happening in the halls of power, but that ultimately behind the scenes, Satan is pulling the strings and using all governments for nefarious ends. And therefore, to cooperate with them would be to cooperate with the powers of darkness. Some people believe this. They, in, the, um, in John's epistle, he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The whole world. And then Jesus says, or sorry, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it says, so Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to whoever I want. And that has led some Christians, just that verse alone, to interpret what is being communicated there is that all the kingdoms and the governments and the empires of this world belong to and are controlled by and serve the purposes of Satan. And therefore, Christians should not cooperate with government. They should get as far away from participation and cooperation with the government as as possible and maybe even encouraged antagonism. And they should not get involved in politics. There should be no... uh, like to have a Christian running for any level of political office, again, is to betray a fundamental um, um, it is to betray a, a core commitment, which is that Jesus is Lord. And if you are participating and helping to grow and expand a system of government that is ultimately belongs to Satan, right? You're, you're, you're serving two kingdoms. Now that's not my view, but that's where some of this reading can go. Now, I think what the scripture is very clear in saying, both Old Testament and New, is that governing political, socio-political systems are often sought by Satan to be leveraged against God's purposes in the world. But we also know that there are lots of scriptures that actually call our default to be cooperation with governing authorities, not because... Uh, or because they have been established by God. So in 2 Peter 2.17, there's a broad ethic that is shared, and that is honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, so love the people that are in your local church, fear God, and then to make sure that this is clear, you are also called to honor the emperor. Not worship the emperor, but honor him. Not every emperor was worthy of honor. Not every person is worthy of honor, but we're still called to honor everyone, to do what we can to bless and serve other people. And in the spirit of Romans 12, which is as far as it depends on us, we should live as Christians and strive to live at peace with everyone. So our default, whether it's to a neighbor, the governing authorities, our children, spouses, friendships, Uh, at work, as far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace and we are to honor other people. And that's why Paul in Romans 13, the very next chapter says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. That's the baseline posture for Christians. Not, well, all these governments are just in the hands of Satan. So we're just going to 
actively fight against the government. No. Governing is a God-given gift. And we are to pray for our leaders and pray for those in authority and do all that we can, as long as it's, uh, do all that we can to support and bless them and to live lives that are filled with making peace, facilitating shalom. Paul says, you're doing this because there's no authority except from God. So if you're just automatically, um, you know, snubbing your nose to authority for no good reason, that's, that's not a Christian posture. You're actually snubbing your nose at God. The authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. This is strong language, right? For rulers are not a terror to, con- um, are not a terror to conduct good, but to bad. Are, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Then do what is good and you will have its approval. For it's God's servant for your good. Ah, so here we have another truth. It's kind of a truth that lies underneath it. Ultimately, actually, it's not Satan pulling the strings. It's God. God. Um, the governing authorities are God's servant. And that's why he continues, if you do wrong, you should be afraid. Because the government doesn't carry the sword for no reason. It's God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So therefore, you must submit. And that means what that word means. It means a relinquishment of a posture of, well, no one gets to tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. Thank you very much. No, you submit to the government. You seek to honor everyone, including the emperor or the prime minister or the president or the mayor. Not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these taxes. So if you're skirting your taxes, if you're not paying taxes, you're stealing, you're sinning. That's wrong. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those who you owe taxes to, tolls to those who you owe tolls, respect to those who you owe respect, and honor to those who you honor. So cycling back to this question, should we cooperate with the government? Our default posture should be absolutely And our next response should be, we will cooperate as far as humanly possible unless we are asked to do something which directly uh, contravenes our faith or um, we are uh, persecuted and then we resist, but not through violence. We resist by praying and seeking to overcome whatever evil we believe to be at play with good. Um, So I know that doesn't put maybe as fine a point as some might want when it comes to some of these, what's our role right now when there's lockdowns and stuff. Um, But my short answer for that is what what we're not seeing right now is a targeted persecution of the church. What we're not seeing right now, we're seeing a government that is scrambling to try and figure out how to, deal with a pandemic and we can argue their relative competency and lack of competency. But what I think Christians are called to in this moment is a tremendous amount of cooperation, 
not just for their neighbor's goods, but for the strengthening of the social infrastructure. Could there be a time in the future where I'm going to say, okay, now things have changed such that we need to provide some principled pushback, nonviolent, writing you know, stuff. Yeah, there's a time and a place for that. But now is not that time. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Again, regardless of what you perceive to be the relative seriousness or threat level of that pandemic to you personally, it's a threat to many people. And we should be cooperating and praying for and doing all we can to work towards a good end. And that means cooperating, and I would argue, complying with public health orders, because if the more people that do that, the better off we're all going to be, both in the short, medium, and long term. Here's another question that this drives directly into, into. is the COVID-19 vaccine the mark of the beast? No. Uh, Okay, let's move on. No, no, I'm just just joking. Let's go back here. Uh, Is the COVID-19 vaccine the mark of the beast? No. Why? Well, think about the symbolism. The only only view that actually holds out the possibility for the mark of the beast to be something tangible and not merely symbolic, uh, um, pointing towards whole life, Um, submitted devotion is the futurist view that in the future, there's going to be this tribulation period antichrist and this religious false Messiah that points people towards worshiping this antichrist figure. And then they're going to only allow people to buy and sell. If you have the mark of this beast, well, is that happening right now? That's the only view that says that, that those would be the conditions under which the mark of the beast would be something literal and specific. That's obviously not happening right now. It's not the mark of the beast. Now, again, we could have discussions on what you think about the vaccine and um, different safety issues um, and and concerns you might have regarding its its safety or uh, efficacy. But none of those discussions should be pulling in an idea like it's the mark of the beast. Uh, if if, If you are saying something like that, you would be signaling to me that you really don't know how to read Revelation. And whoever you're listening to in getting those ideas, you need to stop listening to them. And not just about this issue, about any issue, because if they can so badly screw up an idea like this, that the mark of the beast could be something like a vaccine, uh, they're, they're not a reliable, like they're not even in the ballpark of what I would call a reliable, um, credible biblical teacher so i know know that's strong language but i'll go toe-to-toe with anybody who wants to disagree with me on that most futurists i shouldn't say most that's not that's an overreach many futurists don't even believe the mark of the beast is something specific like a credit card or a vaccine or some kind of artificially intelligent tracking system implanted Again, they just see the symbolism and say, during this tribulation period, there's going to be some mechanism of kind of like a terms and conditions when you sign up for this new software, can you, you know, read the terms and conditions? And you're like, yeah, I'm literally handing my soul over to the worship of this person because I believe they can provide me with salvation during this time of tribulation. Most futurists don't even believe in something literal like that. So no, the COVID-19 vaccines have nothing to do with the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is intentionally 
Oh, maybe I didn't. Did I? Did I mention this even back? Let me go see. Hmm. Hmm. Where were you? Oh yeah, right here. So, the mark of the beast is kind of the second time in Revelation that we've seen people get marked or sealed. The first was in Revelation seven three, when when you see the hundred and forty four thousand standing in heaven that, that they're sealed with the spirit of God. I don't think we're meant to think that that's a real thing in the sense that when we're in heaven, we're going to have like this thing on our forehead. It's, it's a symbolic depiction of God's supernatural protection. So that when John is seeing this vision, there's a, there's an identifying marker that he can say, Oh, those have been marked out by the lamb as his own. And these people have been marked out as belonging to the great beast. So COVID-19, no. Uh, Vaccines are completely disconnected from any kind of Mark of the Beast stuff. The Mark of the Beast, sorry, one more point. The Mark of the Beast is not something that you would, um, it would be something that you would knowingly enter into. There wouldn't be a question of what, if you have to ask, is this the Mark of the Beast? It's not the Mark of the Beast because there's nothing in this chapter that seems to indicate that this mark would be something that you could kind of like sneak into people's lives or inject it into them and without them knowing. This is a conscious giving over of your will to an anti-Christ um, political, economic, social, religious power. And you're essentially saying, I'm going to worship you or that instead of God. So that being said, this chapter does have some helpful it provides a little bit of fire, a little bit of grit, a little bit of uh, uh, some smelling salts so that we avoid some temptations, which depending on the age that you live, uh, Christians and people have been prone to certain temptations. So the beast from the sea, that symbol is a good reminder that there's always people who are vying for the state or for the government to be seen as godlike. And, and, and maybe they even want the government to be godlike. They want to have the government to have more and more control over how you talk, what you think, what you do, your future, everything. And I think this is a good chapter that grounds us as Christians in saying, I'm going to resist um, ideologies and movements that seek to glorify the role of government in our life. Necessary? Yep. Good? Yep. Glorify it. Venerate it. Invest a huge amount of our hope in it. Mm, That's probably not wise. The beast from the earth, right? This is like a proverbial wolves in sheep's clothing, but it's dragons in sheep's clothing. It has a lot to remind us that there are people in this world who kind of sound a lot like Jesus. They, They have the appearance, they they have a, a marketing, they have a way to market themselves and their brand that they look very Christian. They look very inviting. They look very safe. They look very spiritually trustworthy. But their content, what they actually teach and how they teach it is a corrupted deception. And so we need to be praying as Christians, all of us consistently, that we would be delivered from false teachers. Again, these are not false teachers who are 
pagan teachers saying, oh, reject Jesus and come follow me. These are teachers who, they look like a lamb. They look like Christians. They signal like Christians. They can quote lots of Bible verses. But how many people have been led astray by cults who can quote, whose leaders can quote Bible verses uh, here and back again. And yet the heart of what they're calling people into is a culture of darkness and deception and ultimately worship of them. And then the mark of the beast is, again, just a good symbolic reminder that we need to be careful not to submit ourselves and to put our hope in ideologies that are specifically anti-Christ, in systems that are anti-Christ. That can be a governing system. It can be an economic system. It can be a philosophical or political ideology. We have to understand the ideas that are swimming around us and ask whether are these actually undermining to my faith in Jesus? And are they asking me, maybe gently, maybe seductively at first, maybe, um, and maybe it's not a full frontal assault on my faith, but there is this um, invitation to let go of faith in Christ and replace it with this unifying theory of everything. You have to be very careful of that. We are called to be sealed by the spirit and in that sealing walk with God faithfully. And that doesn't mean being suspicious of every idea and every person and every system, but it does mean cultivating discernment and realizing that even good systems that are meant to be God's servant can get turned and leveraged to really demonic ends. Maybe the most uh, practical outlay of all of this though and you could argue this is for all of Revelation, but certainly for Revelation 13 is, um, you know, to quote Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. What's interesting about Revelation is there is no kind of third option. There's no neutral ground. It's not like, well, you can be belong to the army of the lamb or the system of the dragon, or, but, or there's another one that's just kind of like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just kind of opting out. I don't want either. Revelation generally and Revelation 13 specifically makes it very clear that you are going to have to ultimately give your allegiance over to one of the competing powers. And I don't mean competing in the sense that they're competing with each other. Like there's no, you know, Satan versus Jesus in an arm wrestle. Oh, oh, who's going to win? Satan's just a creature. He's a defeated foe, but they are co-competing for your allegiance. And Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So who are you serving? Whose mark are you taking? And if you say, well, I'm deciding, I'm deciding. I I haven't decided yet. I'll I'll, I'll wait a, a little bit longer. Part of the challenge of this text is to say, then you've already in a sense rejected Christ. Because what you're saying is, hmm, I will, I'll decide that for myself. No one's going to tell me how to live. I don't want to be in subjugation to Jesus. I want to be in charge. And 
that is oh, I want to I want to use loaded language that is a satanic idea not in the sense that you're going off to worship Satan or become a devil worshiper in earnest but what is the core temptation of Satan in the garden to Adam and Eve? Did God really say you're not to do, like, don't worry about it. Who's God to tell you how to live? You, you make your own decisions. Then you'll be like God. You do what's right for you. Then you'll be like God. And instead of humbly trusting God and obeying him, they said, yeah, you know what? You're right. Maybe... Maybe I do have a right to my own life. You're going to have to serve somebody. It can be the devil or the Lord, but there's no neutral ground. You got to serve somebody. Who are you serving in and through your life? If you've never turned your life over to Jesus, uh, you know, the best time to turn your life over to Jesus was 10 or 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. And if you've never done that, I would invite you seriously consider the importance of doing that both for the short term, medium term, long term and your eternal future. Because history is being moved toward an end game where there's only one of two choices. You are either with Jesus, safe, secure, redeemed and restored in him or you are not. Revelation later chapters will explain that a little bit more. But for now, I want you to hear the words that were spoken to me when I was in grade nine. And it hit me like a, like a freight train. It's really important that you ask Jesus Christ into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. Not just your Savior, not just someone who saves you and helps you, but your Lord, your authority. He wants to be both. And if you surrender to him as both, I mean, hold on, because it's going to be an awesome ride. But you need to surrender to the Lamb fully. For those of us who have, let me send you out with this benediction from Romans 8, 38 and 39. For those under the authority and the power and the seal of the Lamb, freed forever from the mark of the beast, from the wiles of Satan, from the corruption of that can be at play within this world, know that there is neither death nor life, nor angels or any kind of ruler, things in the present or things to come, no powers, no height, nor depth, nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, the Lord. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless, guys. See you soon.